Welcome back to Intelligent Industry, a show from Capgemini. I'm Vito Labate. This is the final part of our first season, and if you haven't already done so, make sure you go back and listen to the first two episodes. Throughout this season, we've been looking at the individual parts of what makes up a smart territory. Over the past decade, every industry has been looking toward what has commonly been called the fourth industrial revolution. One of the most exciting promises of that revolution has been something we've come to call a smart city. A singular place that when we roll up all the new technology and approaches to our economies and infrastructure, it all comes together to create an efficient, intelligent machine. If the last year has taught us anything, it's that the idea of a singular city being smart is breaking down. What we mean by this is that as our communities move away from central hubs, we saw a revitalization of more remote neighborhoods. As a result of this, the roadmap that was set out for a smart city had to be changed and to fit the new needs and wants of the people who live within it. On the last episode, we spoke to Pierre-Adrien Hanania. We spoke to him about the difference between a smart city and a smart territory. So I'm going to take a little detour. I want to talk about technology. So AI, 5G, and edge computing, these are all the kinds of terms that are floating around right now. Can I ask you, though, in your view, the impact of 5G, edge computing, and the Internet of Things? How do you see that influencing the smart city and how we are connected as citizens? And what about our artificial intelligence? What role have you seen AI play in some of the cities that you've worked with around the world? It's a leitmotiv in, in this conversation, but basically... The first lesson that really I learned from the different uh, smart city and smart territory projects that I, I've witnessed is AI worked when there was a strong and intelligent uh, use of data or data governance. That was the case in very different contexts, but exactly this was the independent variable. If I look at what my field is, AI, AI for the public sector and in very different service fields like healthcare, mobility and so on. I, I would see four playgrounds where AI uh, has been really impactful. First of all, automation of administration processes where cities have relied more and cities authorities on end-to-end -end automation of case management, on end-to-end -end automation of document uh, processing from the uh, extracting of the information to the validation, etc. But more concretely, the second playground was on interacting with the citizen because on any given service, be it home care, let's say, or how do I get to my job, there can be an interaction with the citizen, not needing any public servant answering again and again the same trivial questions. How do I get today to uh, the job? But playing with the data available on weather patterns, on, for example, as well, traffic in real time, but also on all the different channels that there are. And that's where we arrive to the, the another playground, which is helping the citizen to take decisions. For example, yeah, how do I get to, the, to, to my job today, to the office? There are, for example, I sit here in Berlin, I have five possibilities. The bus, I can walk, I can take the car, I can take the metro, I can take the bike. And it really depends on what my experience in the city is the one I want to have. Is air quality to me important? Or is the time I need important? Or maybe I have an handicap and, and therefore too many changes of infrastructure of channels are not a good idea. So depending on all these options and there AI can help, I, I can really 
AI can really leverage data in order to see, okay, that will be the situation tomorrow. We suggest you to do that. And the same goes for the fourth playground, which is anomaly detection. Detecting anomalies can be a very different aspects of life, but one that cities are using a lot is, for example, garbage detection or broken infrastructure detection. And this is something where with computer vision and with AI, we can really assess in, in real time if there is a danger or if there is a dangerous situation and alert the relevant authorities. These are just a, a few playgrounds where I see the potential of the public authorities to deliver better and more efficient services. Many of the aspects in terms of delivering renewable power or low carbon power, you, you would believe that we've already done it. We've been there, done that. We're the leaders in delivering a low carbon future. But I'm sure you will be aware that we're only round about 35% on a good day, 38 This is Nina Skorupska of the REA. Sometimes when it's very windy, um, renewable power on the system, low carbon, we could add the nuclear to it. But is that going to be enough to meet net zero? The fact that we are only in the foothills of the mountains that we yet have to climb to even embark on net zero. So whilst power is going pretty well and we've got auctions and you'll have heard on the news around the auction of the pledge from offshore wind that could be built in 23, 2024, coming in at 40 pounds a megawatt hour. It, these are incredible numbers when they're actually potentially lower than what we may be thinking in the future wholesale power prices are likely to be. So is power just enough? Because you will attend lots of different meetings and I attend them too on many of our members' behalf. And we think that heat and transport, all we need to do is electrify it. But that's definitely not the answer either. I think the growing question and the answers that are coming to the fore are that we need all solutions in order to deliver that net zero ambition. Maybe you were thinking, you don't think we'll hit that target in 2050 of net greenhouse gas emissions. And as an engineer, I'm going, okay, that's really not going to happen by 2025. But when can it be? Now, the Committee on Climate Change and also the commitment from the government, which is the big shining light of this last year, is that bringing into, into law that we will be embarking on that trajectory for net zero greenhouse gases by 2050, you know, they've got to have a game plan. They've got to have a clear view of what needs to be done. And the Committee on Climate Change have laid out over the next each 10 years for all the different sectors, not just for energy, but for your sectors, commercial, industry, businesses, what you have to be thinking about doing. So what responsibility would you say those players that are becoming part of a smart territory, maybe from a commercial or industrial standpoint, what do they need to be doing to make a difference here? Like in your businesses, when you come up with a great idea, but having a great idea isn't good enough. It's got to be at the right time, with the right people, in the right place, I would argue we are at that right time 
were instead maybe in your businesses, you might still be having to be pushing against some locked doors to convince bosses that that it isn't just buying your power from a renewable supplier or the fact that you're thinking of installing some form of renewable generation. Do we just fit solar panels or what? Or you've already got combined heat and power systems or you've got an integrated solution for your customers using your building as a power station, taking advantage of the burgeoning flexibility market that's going to be arriving on our doorstep very soon if we can get the regulator and our grid businesses all sorted out to really show all those different opportunities of how businesses can make money. I love the idea of a smart territory, but if I'm a citizen, what are some examples of where the smart city maybe wouldn't meet my needs? Why do I want this really? If, if I'm a citizen, clearly there are benefits for me to access municipal services or city services, but what do I give up for that? And is it worth it? That's really an um, extraordinary topic to me because it's really at the crossroad between the technology that impacts him, the society with the values uh, and his role with duties and rights, and also what he or she expects from the political arena. So that's really, to me, a field that I study a lot. And uh, I would go along a dichotomy of the passive smart citizen and the active smart citizen. Of course, there is this, the, the passive smart citizen, the one who consumes digital services, who embraces indeed digital public services. So, for example, having a mobile app, taking decisions in accordance as well with digital services provided by the city, being connected, etc. But what does really interest me more and more is the smart citizen in an active way, in a productive way as well. What I mean with that is a smart citizen who would contribute to the gathering of data and also the gathering of knowledge, therefore, of the city. Because at the end of the day, data can be really a synonym for the knowledge. And we know that knowledge is power because it's information. And one very concrete way and I will take two examples for that because they are very different, but still is if the citizen starts to help the city to have a better overview of what's happening here and, and what is happening wrongly, for example, that is the moment he or she gets to the state of smart citizen. First example, there has been an app deployed in Norway, if I remember well, called Traffic Again, and this app uh, allows children to notify through uh, a mobile app whenever they feel unsafe on the road to the school. And the first output, of course, is that we help the children to uh, feel safe and, and to interact with the city. But let's think one step further. What happens with the feedback of the children? What happens with the feedback of one child saying, I felt unsafe exactly here in this city. It can mean a lot of things. Maybe there is too much traffic and not enough traffic signals. Maybe there is just also someone, a security authority a person missing. Maybe there is not enough light. Or just simply also maybe it's an abandoned street, there is no bus station. And it would maybe be the good first next step of the city to plan more lights, more people, or more infrastructure there. And that's, in my opinion, a moment where this child 
whatever age has contributed to the city making uh, decisions in order to, to fulfill better services. And the same goes, and that's an example directly linked on Dijon project with, for example, as well, we have their mobile uh, app and there is an incident notification possibility. And in Dijon, what the city did is really to bring the city from six data centers to one central command center. And whenever a citizen sees an, an incident or happening, whatever it is, broken infrastructure or a car accident, he or she can interact through the interface with her city or his city central command center, describe the incident, give the information that simply, to put it simply, sometimes saves life because otherwise you will need to uh, call. You don't always know who to call. Maybe you don't also call the right number. Then it's being reverted to another point. So sometimes there are a lot of minutes going there. And what happened with this mobile app is really to be able to react in record time with the right information coming at the right place. And then this allows the city administration to send the right people to the right place. This is, these are two ways or two examples of the same way how a citizen used digital channels to actually make the city smarter, which in my opinion, yeah, is the definition of smart citizen. It's been more than a year of the pandemic for almost every city around the world. And privacy has become an issue more than ever with contact tracing and other things that have been happening. I wonder, Pierre, about your thoughts on how the pandemic changed our relationship with our cities. First of all, uh, it, it was, of course, for many and, and uh, mostly also people who used to travel really had a year where they uh, got stuck with their own city, which is a, a great way to, yeah, to have a good talk. I guess that's uh, what they did. Of course, we have seen a, a great shift in organizations, public or not, or towards uh, home office and uh, new work solutions. But what we have seen was really that citizens have had a really great example of how smart cities, the smartest they are, to face events like, like a pandemic. And, and that's basically what we have seen. So 68% uh, of the city officials have said that smart city initiatives helped actually them to manage the COVID-19 crisis effectively. That is because of mastering data, of, of having an overview of patterns. Just to take one example, for example, at health agency hotlines, we were able also to help public organizations and, and these helplines to uh, tackle trivial calls and then to uh, pass them to, to chatbots, for example, in order for the helpline to concentrate on, on the real deal. Just as well, we helped, for example, and, and hospitals have implemented these systems with AI to monitor the availability of ICU beds and also not just to monitor them, but also to predict and prescribe actions. So to predict when will these beds be available again for new patients and prescribe what should we do about that about that situation that is not yet here, but which is coming. And I guess that this was really a data-powered move by smart cities, enabled by the smartness of cities. This really showed us this year that, that of course, the digital twin is not a replacement of uh, old channels. It's simply 
an augmentation and an additional layer that gives more power and then power of action to, to the city in order to provide better services quicker and uh, more efficient. I also think of what this means for the democratization of services for citizens at every stage of life. Some who are savvy with technology and some who aren't. How do we see cities tackling this problem where you may have a segment of the population who is digitally native while others are not? I mean, one thing that we see uh, happening a lot um, is basically to talk, um, to, 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 uh, to come together and talk, uh, to, to organize workshops. We see uh, a lot of uh, different um, organizations uh, organizing this kind of workshop in, in order to assess um, what's coming. And, and basically the, the, um, the question is, is really important in many ways. First of all, it's important for the citizen in order to have uh, him or she consume the new public service in a digital way to to embrace it uh, but it's also important for the public servant for example for me who works in in the public sector or for for our clients from the public sector um, we need the citizen to accept um, the new technologies but we also need the public servant that dealt before with uh, with um, a non-digital process to accept um, the the new buy in in this process and um, what helps a lot when it comes to that, is um, understand the output um, brought by, by the technology. For example, AI, AI explainability is here really key. Um, to be um, secure about um, the data privacy issue, and that's yeah. what a city official needs to take care of. Um, and, and also to, to uh, see that it's not about being replacing, it's really about uh, being, being augmented here. Um, and, and this, uh, I take AI because that's, of course, a focus that I have at Capgemini, but uh, we could take uh, any other uh, technology here as well. So I guess involving from the beginning and uh, involving also in, in the peu à peu step-by-step decision-making process, like the example before in, in Singapore uh, with the bicycle roads. The smart territory is just the beginning of how we think about intelligent industry. By understanding all the components that come together to make up a connected community, we can take this approach to look at how we can do things differently on a much broader scale. We'll be back in the coming weeks with season two of Intelligent Industry. A big thank you to Nina Skorupska of the REA and Pierre-Adrian Hanania from Capgemini. You can find out more about each of them and the work that they do in this episode's show notes. If you like this episode, don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. Intelligent Industry is hosted by me, Vito Labate, and produced by Capgemini and Adrift Entertainment.